you have to stay on top of trends. Today's leaders always need to be learning. In this environment of limited resources, the only way to remain competitive is your ability to leverage your most important resource. Welcome to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. In this program, we'll dive into leadership fundamentals that are essential to your success. Now, here's your host, Tom Crea. Good Monday morning. Welcome back to Your Evolving Leadership Journey with Tom Crea, your host. Like you, my journey continues, and this is a show for anybody who's interested in learning. Last week, we spoke to Chris Kamajarjewski about the power of reputation. Next week, we're going to speak with Ken Gosnell, the author of Well Done, a 2020 book to come out on steward leadership. And you're going to find everything related to this show at yourevolvingleadershipjourney.com. Check out our schedule, see who's next, catch up any episodes you missed. And if you'd like, continue the discussion with like-minded individuals in our LinkedIn group. Now, today we have the privilege of speaking with Ann Bear Thompson, excuse me, Ann Barr Thompson, and um, her and her book is Do Good, Purpose Beyond Profit. If you have any questions, our call-in number is 866-472-5790. Now, Ann has been inspiring business leaders to use their brands as a motivating force for change for many years. She is the author of Do Good which explains her pioneering model of brand citizenship. We're going to talk about that. She believes that companies who have a higher purpose than simply making a profit are more likely to attract loyal customers. I agree. And that's one of the reasons I picked Anne as our guest. Um, so she, she's going to talk about the business case for doing good. Now, she conducted her own three-year quantitative and qualitative study. It's called Culture Q. We'll get into that as well. And then the five steps that progress steadily from a me focus to a we focus. And I'll, of course, let her explain all that. So, Anne, welcome. Thank you for being a member of our show. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Well, look, Anne, so personal values are important to our listeners. And you wrote this book with the title, Do Good. Mm -hmm. Why this title and what values, what personal values inspired you to write this book? Well, um, the title part is slightly easier. Um, and, and faster. Uh, it was a working title, my proposal, and I didn't intend for it to stick actually because from the time I started doing my research at the end of 2011 to the time I uh, wrote the book proposal to the time I accepted uh, an offer from a publisher, the world was sort of uh, getting filled with different models of doing good and purpose, and I, I felt that it might undermine actually the strategic nature of what's presented in the book, but the publisher loved it. Mm -hmm. And you have to pick and choose your battles when you're writing a book with a publisher. And I saved most of mine for the inside of the book rather than the outside. <laughs> um, and uh, what I do like about it is it's a call to action. Do good. Call right. to action for businesses to step up and uh, become citizens, become active members of society as we face a, a very important time of need for change in so many models that we work around institutionally beyond business. Uh, the other thing that's, that's sort of nice is that uh, creating prosperity is fantastic, but when you think of the word wealth, and this goes into doing good, the word wealth stems from the old English definition, wheel. And wheel is to be well, to be healthy. <clears throat> and there's even some things that show in the mid-17th century, we all meant happiness. So doing good actually has such a broader meaning and creating wealth hmm. has a wider meaning than just creating financial prosperity. So that's the answer to do good. 
Uh, maybe not as quick as I promised, but That's okay. uh, <laughs> That's okay. um, my personal values um, actually are, and, and my mode of living and being actually is what inspired me not only to write the book, but to do the research at the end of 2011, uh, when I was launching my company in the U S after living in the UK for a decade, I was conducting research and it was not about doing good. It was not about purpose. There was one question about uh, businesses that, that behave responsibly, that are good corporate citizens. Um, and in this research through a wide range of other questions as well uh, about uh what the best career was for people, uh, what you would do with free time, what were your worries for the coming year, what are your hopes, and this was the end of 2011 uh, when people were being told after the Great Recession that they were supposed to be healthier, happier, wealthier, and they weren't feeling it. And what came out of this research unsuspectingly was people were saying they wanted business to step in and reform society. So I'd always been concerned um, on my personal side with advocating for women, with volunteering in the community, with a variety of things. And I had a professional life that was always about aligning values in a business. And when I came into branding, it wasn't about the outside face of a business. It was about the internal alignment because I'd worked in companies, I'd worked in banking, and I'd like to see businesses aligned. So this orientation drove me to further investigate this insight that came from the research. So the values are sort of the values of who I am and what my parents taught me that I can always contribute, I can always give. And to me, it was too important a finding to ignore. So I did the research, which led me on a very long journey, which led to the book. That's fantastic. Now, she brought up a couple things, and it's funny. As I was reading your book, and you 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 gave us the definition of wealth, and uh, I noticed that you do that several times in the book, and I got to tell you, since I like to find the root derivation of words, I appreciated that. So, we won't spend too much time on that, but uh, you talked about personal values, and you talked about aligning those values, which I think is extremely important for whoever you are, wherever you go, make sure that your values align with wherever you were. And one of the things that Anna and I shared in an email exchange before this particular call was, you know, what are some of the um, values that align with servant leader's traits? And and she came, she had done some more research. I'll let her talk about that. But she came up with seven characteristics. And I asked her to speak about one of those right now that would be valuable for any of those people who are interested in servant leaders, leadership and listening. So, um, when, when we had this discussion, I actually looked up the characteristics of servant leadership from a technical standpoint, and based on uh, what I found on the internet, it's listening, empathy, stewardship, foresight, persuasion, conceptualization, awareness, healing, commitment to the growth and development of people, and building community, which was far more than I actually expected. Um, but to me, all of those actually align with brand citizenship. They don't natu necessarily naturally all align with the characteristics that I learned in the research that people saw as leaders. Um, and there were seven, I'll just name them quickly, and then I'm going to focus on two of them rather than one because I think they really work in tandem with this notion okay. of servant leadership. So the seven characteristics that based on this three plus years of research I did that people identified leaders, whether they were people in their lives, politicians or brands, all shared were visionary, courageous, sincere, empathic, transparent, um, especially for um, businesses and brands, efficient and practical. 
Um, although people like admire efficiency, so getting to it in everybody. Um, how, so the two I'd like to focus on, though, relative to servant leadership, are the notion of visionary and courageous. Because you don't, in the technical definition, neither of those words is really there. But I think in many ways, they're actually inherent to what a servant leader is. Okay. Um, to be visionary is to inspire people with a clear view of how things progress forward, of how your, the organization fits their life, of how the organization serves. So it's not only you serving as a, a servant leadership, but it's the organization serving because you represent that organization. And to me, that aligns with stewardship and conceptualization. And then what I think goes with that, because to be visionary is also you need to be courageous because often that notion of serving is outside the norm of what people are expected to do in their day-to-day -day jobs, even with you as a senior manager or an executive. So the notion of cour courageous, of taking considered risks that push people and society forward um, really fits in with stewardship, conceptualization, and progress to me. So I see those two notions of being visionary and courageous as not necessarily the way everyone defines them in, in that bigger way, but actually people who serve are visionary, and they don't necessarily always identify it because that's not they, they don't see themselves as a hero leader. Right. And we tend to, we tend to um, attribute courageousness and visionariness to hero leaders. But I think servant leaders, even if they're quiet leaders in an organization, have these two qualities as well. Well, you know what? Your, your comments there um, caused me to want to make a quick announcement to the listeners. Number one, this, our, the pilot has been successful and I've been extended. So you're going to continue to see more shows in 2020. Uh, I don't have them listed on the site yet, but they're going to get there. But your comments, Ann, about visionary and courageous lead me to say, you know what? I want to find authors who really dive in deep into those two topics and bring that and explode, explode upon that, if you will, in uh, next year's shows. So, Let's get into your book. Part one, you talk about a brave new world. I really want to focus on part two, but uh, this is something that at least can start us off. In the first part on page 20, you talk about the Nike CEO, Phil Knight, and he concedes in a speech that um, that day he did something more powerful than admitting Nike had done something wrong. If you could give us a quick backstory and tell us why that was so powerful um, for brand citizenship. So um, the backstory is probably something even people who were not adults in 1991 remember, because it's a, a, something that still is a cloud that periodically comes up over Nike, and it has to do with child labor practices. Um, and in 1991, uh, an activist named Jeff Ballinger published a report that called Nike out for these practices. And Nike did an audit, and they said they were fixing their, pra their practices, and they, they were quick to publish the results of their audit and their changes. Um, but in 1997, students um, who tend to be the source of a lot of activism, college students went out there, and they began to protest Nike's practices because they felt this report that had been published five or so years earlier, six years earlier, actually wasn't as honest as it could have been. Um, and in 1998, uh, Nike was not necessarily in its strongest position. And Phil Knight, who's a, a pretty well-known CEO and actually was a very strong, powerful CEO that, that helped push Nike forward, um, came to the New York Press Club and actually said that 
Nike has become synonymous with slave wages. And he, he went out there and said it. And he didn't say it in that way some people do of mea culpa, it's on us. He said it in a very sincere way. He spoke from the heart. If we go back to those characteristics of leaders, mm -hmm. he spoke sincerely from the heart. Um, and what was powerful was he was acknowledging in his speech where he said that, um, and I quote, I truly believe that it, the American consumer does not want to buy products made in abusive conditions. He was acknowledging that he heard what his customers were saying. And that was a powerful thing to do because he acknowledged it in a way that came from the heart and that pushed the company into a better stead with consumers, with people. I like to think of consumers as people because when we say consumers, we forget that it's us, our neighbors, our friends, our family. We're, we're all people buying. Consuming is because we use the product and that comes from economics. But he acknowledged that these people who, who bought his products, who liked his products, who liked Nike, did not want to buy products from someone who was not treating people well and fairly. And he, he started to transform the company with that large statement. Okay, well look, that's a great lead in for any leader because speaking from the heart, not, uh, you know, it, that's the way you're going to capture your people's attention. So, you know, one of the great things about this book is it's different than some of the others that I've um, reviewed and, and then, of course, had the interviews with. And um, but I'll, I got to tell you, after reading the book, there's just so many pearls in there and we're not going to be able to cover them all. So I'm going to recommend the book. But Anne, before we get into the heart of your book, which is the path of brand citizenship, please explain to the listeners, what do you mean by the me to we journey? Oh, the Me Too We Continuum. Well, that is actually the pathway and heart of brand citizenship. But what I learned, um, in this time of purpose, it's very easy for businesses, for people to think the purpose of their business is meant to have a social mission. And if you are, then you're a social enterprise. We have to remember the purpose of a business is to make a profit. And even with the business roundtable saying businesses have a stakeholder orientation now, and the purpose of a business is to serve all stakeholders, not just shareholders, um, which it's, was very exciting to hear that happen earlier this year. It's what I've been pushing for for many, many years. Um, Congratulations. But, yeah, thank you. Well, it's not just me. A lot of people out there. But, oh, sure, but even course. with that, the notion of purpose has to balance what your business is about with how it serves its customers. And if you go to Peter Drucker, Peter Drucker says the purpose of a business is to create a consumer. But he also says that a society entrusts a business with its resources and a business is to basically caretake, to steward in the term of servant leadership, these resources well. Now, to steward these resources well and create a customer, you have to serve both me and we. So if the purpose of a business is to start with creating a customer, your first purpose as a business is to serve me, to serve the customer. But I would also turn that a little bit in the way one would turn a word in a hologram. Me is also the employee, because if you serve the employees better as individuals, they produce better, which leads you on to have more profits and serve all your stakeholders better. So when you start with me and you start with a business purpose that covers what you're doing to serve your customer, but then you spin outward from that to service the world, to service we, 
from an aligned strategy rather than having a social mission that has nothing to do with your business. When you align your strategy and align the purpose of your business with a social mission and how it fits with your values as a business and, and the business you conduct, you serve both individuals and you better the world. So you move from me to we in a continuous manner. And when you go through the five steps of brand citizenship, you see that, and just very quickly to jump a little bit ahead, it's trust, which has to do with me, enrichment, which has to do with mine, responsibility, me, mine, ours, um, community is step four, that's us, and then contribution is we. So me, mine, ours, us, we, trust, enrichment, responsibility, community, contribution. Great. Now, look, what, one of the things that I took away if, uh, from not only the book, but the message there is that these companies have to inspire their, um, their clients, if you will. And it's the same thing for leaders that there's some great lessons to be learned from the, at the organizational level that you can take and apply to your role as a leader. And so Stan went through the uh, five different steps of brand citizenship. And uh, like I said, we're not going to have time to cover everything. Uh, the book is, is very robust, a number of uh, examples to learn from. And, and I took a few, not a few, I took a number of pearls away myself. I really want to concentrate uh, on chapter four and uh, trust in chapter six, I believe, on responsibility. I believe that's all we're going to have time for. So let's just jump right into trust. Okay. When she's talking, when you, when Anne was talking about trust, she says the favorite brands that cultivated the most trust when they embodied these five characteristics: clarity, reliability, sincerity, reciprocity, active listening. And we're going to try to get into as many as we can. So the first one I'd like you to talk about is: can you tell us what we can learn about the, the story you shared about Walmart? about clarity. So clarity has to do with clarity of purpose. And um, if you think about your friends you trust the most, they're the ones you know where they're coming from. You know when you can rely on them, you know, you know when they'll be there for you. Right. The ones who flip-flop are the ones you don't trust so much. Right. And Walmart you know, has had a lot of challenges. And Walmart we could, we could actually use as an illustration through for most of the five steps, but I'll just focus a little bit on this trust aspect. Um, Walmart, until 2007, and, and many people may remember this, had um, a strap line or tagline of everyday low prices. And that's what they were about, everyday low prices. And in my research, one of the findings that came up that surprised me, at the end of 2011, Walmart was named by a significant number of participants in the U.S. so that it came within the top five, and I actually think it might have been in the top one, two, or three, um, if I remember correctly, um, as being a good corporate citizen. And at that time, Walmart was not known for its sustainability chain or, or anything. It was actually known for treating employees poorly. And here people are telling us Walmart is one of the number one good corporate citizens. Mm -hmm. And it was surprising, but when you looked at why, it was because because of Walmart's pricing policies, they afford me a better life. So there was a clarity, there was a trust of what they were there about. Okay. In 2007, they decided to expand what they were about to get people to understand what lower prices actually meant for them in a day-to-day -day thing. And this is actually what was reflected in people's responses. So in 2007, they went from everyday low prices to save money, live better. So they were trying to tell their customers 
that they care about the quality of their lives. Mm -hmm. And this came across from loyalists in our study that Walmart cares about me. That's why they have lower prices. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Um, good. That, then let's go on to your next. Uh... It looked like you wanted more from that. <laughs> no, I wasn't sure. I was, I, and just for the listeners. Because I could I, go on for a long time. I was trying to focus it on clarity. Yeah. Hey, we're on a video chat and I'm, I'm trying to read here and I misread. So my bad. All right. So the next part of uh, trust, you talk about reliability and I like the Chipotle story that you gave. So how does that, um, excuse me, how does that talk about resilience, not reliability? So, well, it is reliability because reliability is about delivering every time. And Chipotle is a brand that has been resilient in its process to to show that. So I'm going to actually tie this as well to clarity because Chipotle's mission in the beginning was change the way people think about and eat fast food. Mm -hmm. It was actually an advocate's mission because you had CEOs that really cared about this food chain, that cared about healthy, fast food, and wanted to give this to people. Now, if you think about that, change the way people think and eat fast food, that doesn't tell me how I'm going to deal with my supply chain. That doesn't tell me how I'm going to deliver the food I'm delivering. It says my store is a way to change the way people think about it. So you're making this really high promise And people want to see that you're giving them good food every time they go in there. They want to see that you're reliable. So it's clarity and reliability. Um, So what happened was, if you can remember, is they had a a series of of food scares in 2015 where there was actually food poisoning that happened. And a lot of it does have to do with the nature of the quality of the food they use. When you use a very organic, a very healthy food chain, you have many more places where things can go wrong. Mm -hmm. So when you're serving this higher mission, there's actually a lot of places things can go wrong. So how you maintain that food chain, how you maintain that delivery becomes far more complex. But when your whole mission is about changing the way people eat fast food, you're not as focused on that. You're focused on the scarecrow video, which you may remember, which actually changed the way people thought about fast food. From my research, the scarecrow video came out, I think it was the second year of my research. And we didn't have the word factory foods mentioned or factory farms mentioned at all in the year prior. And then suddenly this word factory farms came about into the vernacular of people saying what were bad corporate citizens, factory farms. That came from Chipotle. Mm. So they actually were accomplishing their mission, even though they weren't delivering a quality product all the time. So they had to step back and reassess what they were about. And that's where the resilience comes in. Rather than give up and say, we're going to make our food, you know, we're going to use less high quality ingredients. They stepped back and they went and they brought in experts and they examined their food chain. They closed the stores to teach people how to handle the food better, how to process and and not process, but how to make uh, the burritos and the bowls better. Mm -hmm. And, Since 2016, when they did that, they actually have not had a food scare, and they've been on a a slow climb back. Um, They brought, in 2018, they brought the the former CEO of Taco Bell, Brian Nicole, in to replace Steve Ells, who is one of the founders. A lot of times, founders are there to serve, and when a business gets bigger, you have to embed their notion of service into the ethos and the ethics of a company, into the mm-hmm. way it behaves, into its operating principles. But they're not necessarily the right people to take a business on in a bigger way. But, right. but the, 
instead of giving up on what Chipotle was about, um, when Steve Ells came back after these scares, he changed the mission to combine what they believed in and how they saw themselves serving society with what the business was about. And they changed the mission to be ensure better food prepared from whole unprocessed ingredients is accessible to everyone. So it was about bringing better food to everyone, which embeds more of a, a operating principle in the organization. And now they're moving forward on this more and they're, they're keeping it there. I would have loved to have seen them become a B Corp to embed this real mission in for life before mm -hmm. bringing in an outside CEO. But hopefully they, they chose carefully, they chose wisely. And so far, um, Brian Nicole is not using the same principles he used for Taco Bell within Chipotle. But resilience is about bouncing back, about being reliable all the mm -hmm. time. So that's why to me, Chipotle actually was a really interesting uh, brand to look at in terms of trust. And the one thing I should say is every brand chosen in my book, and as you know, having read it, there are large brands and small brands, brands you know, brands you don't know. All these brands came from the research. I didn't pick them out because I thought they were good examples. Mm -hmm. They were all brands people named in the research. And out of over, uh, there were 2,200 brands actually named as good corporate citizens in, in the research um, over and over and over again. So probably if I looked at them all in a wider perspective, it would probably be even more. But out of those 2,200, I would say I researched probably over, probably 10% or so before choosing the ones that ended up in the book. Yeah, well, look, we're going to have to go to break here soon. So I want to, one more question, but oh, I want to, well, that's fine. This is great. Um, better to probably go deep in this chapter of trust and let everybody experience what your book is about. But when you were just talking there, I would tell you that what went through my mind was M. Scott Peck's book, The, Ro the Road Less Traveled, and how these corporations have to do something exactly like that on a much grander level. And, and the, the word character comes to mind. The one thing I would like you to do, because I never knew about this until I read your book, is tell us what a B Corp is, and then we'll go to a break. Okay, so B Corp is a certification by an organization called B Lab. Um, and uh, it means that you have a social mission embedded into the purpose of your business, and it's in your charter. Uh, it's not necessarily a legal structure. A legal structure is a, a benefit corporation, which is something that started originally, I think, only in Delaware, and I think 11 states, I'm not 100% certain, actually allow you to now have a legal structure for this. But B Corp is a certification versus a legal structure. Clearly, these two things work in tandem. What I would say is it's very hard for especially large public businesses to become B Corps. And being a B Corp isn't an end-all to be-all. B Corp has an amazing assessment for any size company. And you see a lot of the companies that are B Corps are organizations where their leaders really are in service to society and really have a social mission from the start. But more and more, they're not. And a lot of the companies that take the assessment which is equally as good to help you down a road of service in your business, um, are wide, wide, wider ranging businesses. Although um, Danone is in the process of having different parts become B Corp Natura, which is a very large Brazilian company is. Um, so there are some public companies out there doing it, but the assessment is equally as important and equally as valuable if not oh. more valuable than the certification. All right. Well, look, great. Thanks. That's all been great information. We've been listening to Ann Barr Thompson. 
She's been speaking to us about her book, Do Good, and we're talking about the five steps to brand citizenship. We're going to take a break, and when we get back, we'll pick up where we left off. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. As Tom works with leaders, something he consistently sees is their struggle with engagement and retention. Then their frustration with having to repeat the employee development process again and again. What most people don't know is the answer lies in love. Once they realize that they simply need to apply the golden rule, the results are surprising. They start bringing out the best in others. They develop confident, capable employees, and they find they have more fun and freedom and less stress in their lives. Perhaps most importantly, they satisfy what they've been craving. Now they've created the culture that they and their team have always wanted. This is when Synergy takes over, and the results are astounding. The first step is critical. When you exhibit the self-awareness and humility that shows you need to learn and improve continuously, you set the example and encourage others to follow. To learn more, visit Blackhawk Leadership Development at BlackhawkSpeaks.com. That's BlackhawkSpeaks.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you have questions or comments about the program, you may send an email to Tom at BlackhawkSpeaks.com. Now, back to your evolving leadership journey. Welcome back. We've been talking with Ann Barr Thompson about her book, Do Good, Purpose Beyond Profit. And we've been talking about the five steps to brand citizenship. And these are all lessons we can learn and take at the corporate level and apply to our role at any leadership level. So we've been talking about in step one, trust and spending a lot of time here because it's extremely important. Um, We have one more example because sincerity is a part of trust that Ann breaks out. So Ann, if you would tell us the Trader Joe's story and what they can teach us about the value of sincerity. Well, uh, yeah, and I'll start with sincerity first and then just give you some snippets from Trader Joe's that reflect it because in today's world, we hear authenticity a lot. And right. I, I, would, I would suspect someone who's a, a servant leader, someone who sees themselves as, as adding more, sees themselves as authentic. And I would, I would challenge people to think of themselves more as sincere. Sincerity is speaking from the heart. In an era where we all curate at best and contrive often our authentic profiles online, 
um, people see the difference between that and sincerity. And sincerity is, as I said, coming from the heart. And that's what Charioter Joe's is about. They're genuine. In reality, their tropical or Caribbean, whatever you want to label, um, uh, face is actually quite curated. It's not authentic at all. It's a mishmash of many things. And if you read the backstory, it's fascinating, which I won't give you now, but if people are interested, you can either find it online or find it in uh, chapter four of my book. <laughs> um, but Trader Joe's is who they are. People love, um, and especially when I did the research, it was labeled millennials at the time. Um, uh, but, but people love the whole notion of going in. They like the hellos. They like all the, the own brand things. They love Trader Joe's because it's, it's who it is at all moments. It is so self-aware and sometimes self-deprecating, but it's fun, it's humorous, and it puts these different elements of Caribbean and tropical cultures together to create something that's uniquely them, that uniquely mm -hmm. comes from their heart. Right. And whether it's, it's bringing in local artists to, to exhibit things mm -hmm. or... Um, you know, having a, a server, you know, not a server, but a, a, a checkout person who, you know, high five you. And I can't remember, they, they actually call these people something special. And I'm just drawing the blank. So I apologize. Um, but Trader Joe's is, is of the neighborhood and it's of itself. Mm -hmm. So it's both me and we. Right. Now, you had an example in the book where the they even bring in the artwork from local artists, which I thought was fantastic. So, look, I got to wrap up Chapter 4 there on trust, and we're going to move into just one example on enrichment from Chapter 5. And as I was reading this chapter, and I was especially reading your, your analogy, if you will, between uh, – or the comparison between um, Quaker Oatmeal and General Mills Swirls, which I – have you talk about that quickly. Here's what went through my mind. I'm thinking of a Thanksgiving meal. And would you rather be at a place, you know, because Thanksgiving's coming up for our listeners who are abroad. Thanksgiving is coming up here this month in November for the people in the United States. And would you rather have that special meal with somebody, with people who are around you who love, you feel, you feel loved, or would you have it be around a great cook? And so that's what went just racing through my mind as I'm listening or as I'm reading your story about those two. So do you want to give a quick um, – Update on okay <laughs> of Quaker Oats versus General Mills swirlers, and this is not from the research. This is from my life experience way back then in the early nineties. Okay. Um, I think I do talk about that a little bit in the book. I bring that up, but um, I was working on uh, a, a variety of products for Quaker Oats, and uh, was working very heavily with instant oatmeal and. General Mills Swirlers, which was an oatmeal that had a pack where kids could draw something with um, in it, uh, started stealing share from, from Quaker Oats and uh, Quaker Instant Oatmeal to be specific. And Quaker was trying for quite some period of time to bring the share back. And when it, they looked, this is actually an interesting thing for people to remember as you're forming your business, as you're, you're a leader in an organization, how outside people view you may not be about where you sit on a shelf, quote unquote, but it may be about where they categorize you in their brain, what their emotional relationship is with you. So Quaker, because it sits on the cereal shelf in a, in a supermarket, kept saying, well, Swirlers stole share from us. And actually General Mills Swirlers was a very short-lived product because kids only like drawing with jelly things for so long and then they get bored and they don't want it anymore. So mm -hmm. the mother isn't going to pay the extra money for the swirl. So they actually were not a very long-lived product. But Quaker 
Instant Oatmeal could not get the share back that it lost, and it kept looking at ready-to-eat cereals. What, what other kids' cereals can we get our share back from? And we were doing some, at the time, actually, it was almost like mother-in-law research. We, we just wanted to, to find out how mothers and kids uh, categorized Instant Oatmeal. Well, where did they see it fit in their breakfast profile? And, and in many ways, I do have to say, this is about serving your customers. This is, is really not about defining things and telling them what to do, but it's about hearing and listening to them. And we went and did this quick little dirty study where we brought mothers and kids in and asked them to tell us everything. And it was mothers uh, of children six and under. And we had them together tell us all the things they ate for breakfast. And this was back in 1991, 92, somewhere in there. And uh, the mothers were embarrassed sometimes to tell us they had the kid eat a Snickers bar in the back of the car when they didn't have time because they were racing off. But this is real life, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and we then had, we brought the kids to one room and we brought the mothers to another room. And it was always in pairs. It wasn't a group. It was the individual mother and child. Um, and we sat with them and had them, we wrote everything they had for breakfast on cards and we asked them to categorize them, to group them. Tell us what groups each of these foods sit in. And what we discovered was instant Quaker oatmeal never was in the group with ready to eat fast cereals. For people, instant Quaker oatmeal was something, was warm. Mommy gives it to me because she cares about me when I'm cold. Daddy gives it to me when he doesn't have time to cook pancakes for breakfast on Saturday. And it was all about parents exhibiting caring and love for the children. Mm -hmm. So instant Quaker oatmeal was serving these people in a very different way than the other items it sat on the shelf next to. So just because it was on the cereal shelf doesn't mean that's what it was competing with. It was competing with pancakes. Right. <laughs> you know, who would have ever thought? So you need to step back and listen, and, and it goes back to that empathy quality. Hearing, hearing what people say, empathizing with why they're doing something. And um, it's, it's, that's how you enrich people's lives. That's how you add more to them, which is step two. Great. Well, look, you know, some important things there. Um, when you say you have to take a step back and listen, um, earlier you talked about how authenticity, authenticity is uh, being used quite a bit lately. And you know what? I've been reading about another um, word that's being used quite a bit lately that's starting to catch on. And I think it's very, very valuable to servant leaders. And it's a four-letter word. You said it, love. Ah, you know, and, and it's just amazing that if you if you actually peel back the onion and you think about how other people want to be treated, and you go back to that magic four letter word, guess what? You're going to solve a number of problems. And so that's why I really wanted you to talk about that example because it really struck me. And uh, anything else you want to add to that before we go on? Well, I would just say if you talk about love, love is an energy. It's, okay. it's, it's the highest form. It vibrates at, at one of the highest meta levels. Um, and so in this time when we're combining uh, quantum physics with metaphysics, it's no surprise that love is coming into the vernacular. Hmm. When you say love is an energy and you, you kind of was taken aback and Anne probably saw that. And of course you didn't see that, but uh, a couple weeks ago I had a guy, um, who talked about music and how music could be applied to the, to the four different emotions. So very fascinating people I'm meeting on the show. All right, well, no more. Let's continue. Let's move on. Um, because she, in the next chapter on responsibility, um, and we'll probably get through one more and then we'll have to start wrapping things up. But 
she talks about um, step three of brand citizenship emphasizes the importance of putting people first before profit and even the planet. So again, putting people first, love. Um, so Ian, if you would expand on why that last part, even the planet, why was that so important to note in that part of your book? Well, and I'm not sure in given what's going on today with climate crisis, it might still be that. And mm -hmm. um, if you have anyone out there listening who wants to sponsor a follow-up study, I invested a lot of money originally into the three years on my own. I gave myself a grant, but if someone else wants to, I okay. would love to repeat it to see if it's still completely relevant at the moment. Because I haven't done We'll have you say that again before years. we close, too, okay? <laughs> no, please um, do. But no, no, but, but at the time it was... Uh, you know, there's a lot of everyone's going green in their packaging, green in this, whether they're actually changing their supply chain at the mm -hmm. time. And in today's world, actually, as, as more organizations are signing up to the global compact, as more people are cognizant of the SDGs and climate crisis and this need for sustainability, there's more purity in the going green. But at the time, the going green was sort of glazing over and it wasn't meaning as much. And what was coming to the forefront during this period after a crisis, and actually you see that in what's happening in elections in many companies, the disaffected people, um, people who don't feel they're being taken care of by government, by companies, by anybody, um, treating employees well and fairly is the basis of a business. And people said they would not give you credit for the good you were doing in the world if you were not known for treating your employees well and fairly. And if I go back to Walmart, this is something that has hung over Walmart's head. It's a cloud. Yeah. And Walmart, when they fix the supply chain, can change a country. It is amazing what Walmart can do and what they have been doing. Mm -hmm. But to, to this day still, when I tweet anything good about Walmart, I get tweets back about, well, my friend got laid off, my this, my that. That, that shadow hangs over them in many ways, much more so than halos hang over other companies. So it was, it was, it's being responsible is not just treating the planet well, and I don't mean that in the wrong way, especially now when we only have 10 years to fix everything. But um, being responsible is about being fair and respecting resources on all levels. And that includes employees down the supply chain. Because the, the idea of slave labor still exists in this world in a way many people are unaware. So your suppliers matter as much in treating employees well and fairly as your employees in your headquarters. Well, thank you. Now, look, um, for those of you, if you don't know Anne, Anne has spent a lot of her time in the UK doing work there. And I'm going to throw a little curveball at her and ask her if she's familiar with a company called McLeod and Clark. Are you? Cloud and Clark, no. McLeod and Clark? McLeod no. And Clark. So let me tell you why. When I speak and I talk about engagement, which we're, which we're, you talk about here when you talk about the John Lewis story, um, and I share my favorite definition of employee engagement. It comes from McLeod and Clark, Clark excuse me, and you know, here's what they say. Very short and succinct. When business values the employee and employees value the business. Now, I love that. And you know, one of the things that Ann was just talking about there with Walmart and in this shadow that they have, and it has a lot to do with reputation and how they've got to overcome different things. She talks about that, of course, in her book. And, and we had a guest last week who 
focus very much on reputation. And she's been talking about being a good steward. And we're going to have a guest to talk specifically about that next week. Uh, but on page 157, she says, among the fruits of this proactive partner model is greater accountability on the part of employee learners as well as better customer service. So if you would, talk a little bit about the John Lewis story, what it means to be employee owned and, and tie in stewardship, steward leadership there, um, as okay. you said. Thank so you. For, for, for perspective, John Lewis Partnership is a um, employee owned company in the UK that has both um, department stores as well as a grocer. Um, and they acquired the grocer over time, but it, it matched their values. And actually, their grocer, Waitrose, um, has had probably one of the most local, sustainable supply chains of any supermarket before it became trendy. Um, but um, if we talk about the fact that greater accountability on the part of employee owners as well as better customer service, I'm going to relate it to a story I tell in the book. When I had first moved to the UK, I was down the road from their store, Peter Jones, which is one of the few stores John Lewis has that's not called John Lewis in their department stores. And I went in there, we were having, um, I don't remember if it was our Thanksgiving dinner, I don't remember which meal it was, but I went in there to get something. And I don't know if you've watched Miracle on 34th Street and how oh, Santa yeah. Claus comes in and tells people at Macy's to go to Gimbel's if that Macy's doesn't have the right product or if it's too expensive. Well, John Lewis partnership is the embodiment of this. I went in to buy something and someone said to me, and this is an employee that owns and benefits from profit. They said to me, well, you don't really want this to get this here. You should go off to, to uh, wherever else they sent me to go buy the product. And I was shocked. I didn't understand. I did buy it there because I was sort of like, this is insane. Um, and, uh, you know, as an American first living, I've spent many years traveling abroad and, and traveling to the UK prior to living there. But living in a country is very different than visiting it. And as an American New Yorker, <laughs> moving to London and having an experience in a department store where someone's telling me to go somewhere else. What went through my mind was Miracle on 34th Street. I'm like, this can't be real. Mm -hmm. But it is real. The employees care about the customers as much as they care about their own hours, about profitability. And if anyone looks up John Lewis, you'll see they're having some, some uh, financial issues at the moment. But that has to do with the UK market. It has to do with online providers and a variety of things. John Lewis is still an amazing company and they've actually changed their brands to actually now say instead of Waitrose, Waitrose and Partners to acknowledge to the outside world that we only run because of these partners, which is what they call the employees who work for us and help us be successful. Yeah, and I just think that's such a fast, fantastic uh I don't know if it's an analogy or a metaphor, but, but essentially if you can get people to um, have that attitude where they're partners, they feel like they're partners, they, they share in the ownership, the responsibility, that's what that chapter is about. Um, such a huge thing. And, and for, for us, for the people who serve in the military like me, responsibility and accountability were way at the top of the list of um, values that were important. So I thank you for that. Now, look, I want to, Unless you have any follow-up comments, I want to give you the opportunity to pick which chapter you'd like to share. Or, or why don't you just give us a little bit about both because we're going to run out of time. Okay. But I, I want you to talk a little bit about what your, your message is in Chapter 7 on community and what your message in Chapter 8 about contribution making me bigger than I am. 
So very quickly, community is, in today's world, it's so easy to go to online communities. And when I wrote the book, it was even easier than now to go to online communities. But community is about connecting people through shared values. And it is as much about connecting your employees together as it is about connecting the outside world with your employees. Um, very quick example, which you had highlighted um, for me in, in our conversations, was IBM, after Louis Gerstner left, and he left the, the company much more financially strong. And Palisamo, who was a classic IBMer, came in and took over the company. Um, IBM was weaker culturally at that point, financially stronger, culturally weaker. And way back when, in 2004, I believe it was, IBM ran a values jam. Now, being IBM, they clearly were ahead on terms of connectivity and digital and getting people together. But for three days, they asked everyone in the company to tell them what they thought IBM's values were, what they thought a classic IBMer was, and they gave people the opportunity to say what IBM still had and what IBM had lost and where they thought IBM should go. So they brought the employees together to create, to reshape, to re revitalize the culture of the company. And that's really about building community. Mm -hmm. The other thing about community is I talk about brands like Mrs. Myers and Burt's Bees and, and the enrichment chapter, which have wonderful stories that people relate to. And both of these brands bring their employees and communities together through volunteer days, whether it's gardens, whether it's saving bees. They, they, bring, they, they make themselves part of the communities they work with. And their customers come there, too. And they give their customers opportunities, um, even if they're not there physically, virtually, to contribute, virtually to do the same thing. So it's about bringing people together because they share your values. And it's also about organizations that bring companies together, mm -hmm. shared values. A lot of these new trade associations that are about doing good, the Forest Stewardship Council is one I outline in the book, they bring together competitors to trade ideas on how to be more responsible when it comes to paper, Forest Stewardship Council, more responsible when it comes to maintaining trees. So community has so many facets to it, and it's so much bigger and more exciting. Contribution. Oh, hold on, hold on. I want to comment there, if you don't mind. Um, look, so when I was reading that chapter, I... I Many of the listeners are part of a, a LinkedIn group that I have that also has the same name, Your Evolving Leadership Journey. Now, it started off with called Servant Leadership Development, and that's really the purpose and intent. And I have to tell you, when I'm reading that chapter, I'm thinking, wow, there are some lessons that I can take from what you're saying here in this chapter, because I really want this to be about people with like-minded individuals sharing thoughts about servant leadership so the people in the group can, you know, opine and, you know, get online and learn from each other. And, uh, and I just wanted to say thank you because I, I, t I had some takeaways from there. We don't have time to talk about them, but I wanted to share that with you. But you, yeah. you you're, you're the guest. You want to talk about them? You can. Go ahead. I just very quickly do want to say one thing to that is I think when people create communities, when organizations create communities, when brands, when businesses create communities, they think they have to own the community and control it. What you need to do is create a, a space, a container for people who share values to come together and let them organically create where this community goes. Well, I'm trying to do that, and I'll, we'll talk offline because <laughs> then the listeners can see that in effect after I get some tips from Anne afterward. So, look, we're run, we're going to be running out of time soon. So I, very I, quickly, contribution since it's the biggest one. Um, or well, we've, got, we've got a few minutes, but don't yeah. you don't have to race so, it. Um, and the one thing I do want to say is with the five steps, you don't. You, the idea is not to end up at contribution. Your your business, your organization 
lends you based upon its purpose to one of the, the five steps. And what you have to do is embrace the five steps and glide back and forth across them. It's not that everyone should see you as a brand of contribution, because again, not every brand can be a brand of contribution. And contribution is about making me feel bigger than I am um, through my, my, my buying your products and services, through my working with you. Brands that illustrate that on and, and sit at that step are, are brands such as Lush, which I outline, which is a, a British handmade cosmetics company, which has a very um, engaged customer base, very engaged employee base. They have 200 locations in the U.S. for, for Americans who are listening to this. Um, and they've, from the beginning, been about embracing doing good. The founders, Mark Constantine and Liz Weir, actually supplied products to the body shop originally. And there's an interesting story I tell about that in the book, which I don't have time to tell you now. But they have been on a mission with um, successes and failures. You, you don't come out of the box uh, day one necessarily, even though you look successful to people from the outside. Um, seventh Generation is another brand like that, and even though they're, they're now owned by a large corporation, they have continued to maintain their charter of contributing. But what's important is brands that um, are not brands that have that notion of activism or doing well from doing good from the start embedded in them can also be contributors. And I outline a brand called Kenko Coffee, which is a coffee brand owned by Mondelez in the UK, which has an initiative called um, uh, Coffee and Gangs um, in Honduras. And by buying products and services, people help Honduran teenagers. And it's a longer story than that. But the idea is that you don't have to be a social enterprise or a brand that has a mission of good at its heart to be a contributor. Well, look, uh, Anne says she doesn't have time, but I'm going to quickly tell you um, the anecdote that I took from the Lush story, um, the company she said that's in the UK and also in the United States now. But uh, <laughs> in the story, there's um, um, what happens is in the story is that the, it's the ask me why I'm naked story. So they've got the employees to somehow go out with just an apron on. Now, there's no in the world you'd ever catch me dead doing that. But here's what you would catch me doing. You would catch me serving the country as an army officer. Now, that doesn't mean that those people who work for Lush would ever want to do what I did or vice versa. And again, it goes back to my message, which I'd like to wrap up, is whatever field you're in, you know, be passionate about what you do, enjoy what you're doing, and have your values aligned, and, and then everything starts to go smoothly there. Um, and so I have one final comment because you, you mentioned yet another thing that's near and dear to my heart. Um, and it'll be a quick story, then we have to wrap it up and go. But I, first, let me say thank you for your time here, Anne. But you talked about Honduras, and I had the privilege of one of the most unique assignments I had in the military was to spend six months in Honduras. And we got to see, instead of doing what the typical Army things were, we got to, my job was to bring in um, units that were reserve units that were either the medical field or the engineer units. And what did they do? They served the indigenous population by uh, building roads, by treating the people of the community. And it was just a very refreshing, fantastic assignment. So again, I want to thank you very much. Today, we've been listening with Ann Barr Thompson about her book, Do Good. There are so many stories in that book. I highly recommend you take a look at it, pick it up and read it. And next week, we're going to be talking to Ken Gosnell about well done, a book that's going to come out in 2020, and that's going to be about steward leadership in particular. Any last word, Dan? No, thank you. Um, uh, if anyone, any of your listeners want to get in touch, I'm at AnnBT on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn as Ann Barr Thompson. Um, 
You can find my email address on various websites. I do respond to everyone and I love having continued conversations. Great. And if you, if you didn't pick up that, go to yourevolvingleadershipjourney.com and look for today's date and you'll find her picture and links to her websites. Thank you so much, Anne. It's been a privilege having you here today. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. Be sure to join host Tom Crea for another edition next Monday morning at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a great week.